can't tell you how much I've enjoyed uh, being with you the last uh, couple of Sundays before today, and uh, uh, I am excited for you, uh, just as I am excited for Dr. Elliot, who's going to be beginning his ministry here. Has already begun on Wednesday night, but he'll be with you next Sunday, and you're in for some uh, great times ahead. Uh, and so this morning, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be over in... Uh, Genesis 37, and we're going to start there and then go to the next uh, couple of chapters uh, looking at some verses there. But I want to speak to you about how God has something special for you. Uh, last week, I made you aware uh, of my rural roots, and uh, you can also tell I'm a Southerner. I tell people I'm bilingual. I speak uh, English and Southern, and Southern's my native tongue. Uh, but... Uh, I remember the story of uh, a young guy who had gotten married years ago. And he and his wife had purchased some property and they were trying to uh, get a farm started out on that property. And it was hard work. But they were together and they were enjoying it. And then they discovered that she was expecting their first child. And that was great news for them. So before you know it, the nine months have passed and it's time for their first child to be delivered. So the husband gets in the buggy and he goes into town to get the doc to bring him back out to the farmhouse to deliver the baby. I told you it was a long time ago, right? And they're on the way out there and the doc looks over at this young man, farmer, husband, soon to be dead, and he says, son, you look worried. Is everything okay? And he says, well, doc, I've never done this before. I'm not real sure I know what to do. And he said, son, don't you worry about a thing. When the time comes... You just stand right beside me and hold the lantern and observe the miracle of God. So sure enough, they get there, the time comes, and he's standing right there. He's holding the lantern, and he sees that wonderful miracle, his firstborn, a healthy baby boy, come into the world. And he is excited. He's thrilled. Mom's okay. His son looks to be in perfect health. And so he, he's taking a half a step back and rejoicing at what he's just witnessed and thinking about all the good times that are ahead. And about that time, the doc says, now, son, hold the lantern. And he steps back over, and guess what? He beholds a second miracle. He watches a healthy baby girl come into the world. Now this time he takes a whole step back. He really hadn't counted on two, but it's all good. He's getting his mind wrapped around that and he thanks God for the blessing. And about that time, the doc says, now son, hold the lantern. And he steps back over and sure enough, he beholds a third miracle. Another healthy baby boy comes into the world. Well, as soon as that happens, he takes the lantern and throws it over in the corner. 
And the doctor says, son, why did you do that? He says, I think the light's attracting them. We're all attracted by light, aren't we? Of all the descriptions of Jesus, one of my favorites is he is the light of the world. And uh, we need that light today more than ever before because it seems like darkness is encroaching upon us more rapidly than I can ever remember in my lifetime. So, we're called to be salt and light. And I want to say to you, that God has something wonderful in store for you as an individual and for you at First Baptist Sherrall. He not only has something wonderful for you, he's got something far greater than you could ever imagine. Uh, the name Joseph, who is who we're going to be looking at in Genesis 37, gives a first-hand testimony of the truth of that statement. Joseph illustrates four facts for us. Those facts are in your bulletin. And you'll find that they're going to be true as you walk the path of life that God has cleared for you, just as they were for Joseph. And if you will remember these four truths, then no matter how dark the clouds how depressing the circumstances, how diligent the critics might be, you'll know God has something special for you. Here's the first point. There is a special person inside you. Now, one of the things that you notice about Joseph immediately in Genesis, when we're starting in 37 this morning, you notice that there was something special about Joseph that set him apart from his brothers. And Joseph knew it. Joseph was different. He was different in his commitment. He was different in his character. He was different in his clothing. That's one of the reasons his brothers hated him. So he kept wearing that many colored coat his dad had given him. He was different. But the other thing that Joseph did was he exposed his brother's wickedness. He uh, exposed their wantonness. He exposed their worldliness. He was dancing along to God's drum beat when they were not necessarily doing the same. Do you know what the password for popularity is in this world? It's the word conformity. It says in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. The Phillips translation translates this verse, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. And you know what the world's always telling you. Go along to get along. And may I tell you that the greatest cult in the world today is the cult of conformity. You know, we have a, a herd uh, instinct that's just natural in us as people. We talk about a, a flock of sheep, a, a pack of dogs, a, a swarm of bees, a covey of quail, a, a tribe of lions, a crowd of people. Well, Joseph has 
a 17-year-old teenage boy took the greatest dare that any young person could take in the world today. He dared to be different. And do you know why you ought to be different? Because you are different. 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine said, people travel to wonder at the height of mountains. They wonder at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, as the, at the vastness of the ocean. They wonder at the circular motion of the stars. And then they pass by themselves without wondering. Do you know why you ought to be different? Different in your living, different in your walking, different in your talking, different in your thinking? Because you are different. Back in the uh, early 1980s, a uh, uh, British geneticist named Alec Jeffries made a surprising discovery in the process of mapping human genes. He extracted DNA molecules from samples of blood cells and then used uh, X-ray and computerized analysis and discovered that every person with the exception of identical twins has a unique genetic fingerprint. Now he said this in 1985. You have to look for one part in a million, 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 million before you'll find one pair with the same genetic fingerprint. Now, the world population today is 7.8 billion. So it can be categorically said that a genetic fingerprint is individually specific to you as an individual and that any pattern excepting identical twins does not belong to anyone else on the face of the planet, whoever has been or whoever will be. Now, what does that mean in simple layman's terms? Because when I read that, I had to read the explanation. That means there's nobody like me. And if you're saying, thank goodness, there's nobody like you. There never has been, there never will be. Now, why is that so important for us to grasp? Because the you you see is the you you will be. And if you see yourself as being different, as being unique, as being special, it will radically change your self-concept. And when your self-concept is what it ought to be, you can be what you ought to be and do what you ought to do. And if we're a child of God, that means we're going to be what God wants us to be and we're going to do what God wants us to do. A recent uh, Gallup poll found that only one-third of the people in America report a strong self-esteem. Now, the reason that's so important is the poll also discovered that people who have a healthy self concept are people who are morally and ethically sensitive and generous in their giving. They're highly productive in their jobs. They are far freer from 
the abuse of chemicals and alcohol. They're more actively involved in society's problems. They view success not just in materialistic ways, but in terms of relationships. They have stronger families and marriages and are more successful in their interpersonal relationships. They handle stress more successfully. They live healthier lives. The first step in having a healthy self-esteem is realizing you are what you are and you are who you are because God made you that way. And because God made you, that makes you special. And you do know that the church is not a building. The church is people. And when we as people realize God has made us who we are and has made us special and we come together, that means the church can be special. But here's the second point. God has a special plan for you. In Genesis 37, verse 5, it says this. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told his brothers, they hated him even more. So Joseph had a dream. Now, this wasn't a, a daydream. It was a divine dream. Now, remember, this was back in the days before there was a, a written revelation from God. And before there was a written revelation, sometimes God would speak to his people through dreams. Now, God doesn't usually speak through dreams today, though dreams can still communicate. One husband was a heavy snorer. And his wife went to see the doctor. And the doctor suggested that she tie a ribbon around his nose the next time he snored. Well, next couple of days he returned in the early hours of the morning from a, a late meeting. He went to bed and as soon as his head hit the pillow, he started snoring loudly. Woke his wife up and she went and got a big blue ribbon and tied it around his nose. And much to her relief, immediately he stopped snoring. Well, when he woke up the next morning, his wife looked at him and said, where were you last night? And he said, as he looked into the mirror, I don't remember, but wherever it was, I won first prize. <laughs> God used this dream that he gave Joseph to communicate his will for Joseph's life. And God let Joseph know that he had great plans for him. You remember the story. You remember he dreamed about sheaves and stars and the sheaves represented the resources of the world and the stars represented the rulers of the world. And God shared with Joseph that one day all the resources of the world would be at his disposal and all the rulers of the world would bow down to him. Now, even though God doesn't necessarily speak through dreams today, that doesn't mean we shouldn't dream. There's a great verse uh, in Joel 
chapter 2, verse 28, that says, After this I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. And your young men will see visions. I have noticed that the truly great leaders in the work of God are people with tremendous vision. People who are not afraid to dream. One of the things that I'm going to encourage you to do as a congregation as you pray for your new pastor is encourage him to dream. Encourage him to get in touch with what God would have him doing through this congregation here. Give him time to dream. Give him time so that God can work in his life. And then together as he shares that dream with you, you can accomplish things that only God can do through you. You see, what's so crucial to understand is God has a plan for our lives. God has something he wants us to do through him, with him, and for him that nobody else can do but you. There are some things that won't get done if you don't do it. And I believe the Christian life is all about making God-given dreams come true. Now, I know dreams without discipline can become nightmares. Dr. Vance Havner, who is uh, an evangelist of days gone by, I heard say visions without work is visionary. Work without vision is mercenary. But vision and work are missionary. You see, dreams are not to be escaped from reality. They're to be blueprints for activity. Now, I want to warn you about something. If you really believe God has a plan for you, if you dare to be a dreamer, you will be criticized, ridiculed, derided, jeered, mocked, laughed at. Remember what Joseph's brothers did when they saw him coming? They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. That wasn't a compliment. There will always be others who will tell you that your dreams are either inconceivable, impractical, or impossible. In 1899, Charles Duell was director of the United States Patent Office. 1899 now. And he made this statement to who was then President McKinley. He wrote him a note and said, everything that, has, uh, that can be invented has been invented. And so President McKinley, my recommendation is you abolish this job, this position next year. Well, the very next year, R.A. Friesenden sent human voice over the radio waves for the first time. In 1901, the Mercedes automobile was constructed. In 1903, the Wright brothers successfully flew a powered airplane. In 1904, the photoelectric cell was developed. All of that just five years after Mr. Duell said nothing was left to be invented. Alexander Graham Bell's father-in-law called the telephone a toy nobody would play with. 
Now everybody's got one and we spend way too much time playing with it. The famous British physicist, Lord Calvin says, radio has no future. The British Royal Astronomer, George Airy said, the computer is absolutely worthless. See, there are going to be cynics and critics who like wet blankets will try and smother the fire out of somebody else's dreams. Don't let them. God has a special plan for you. But then here's the third thing. There are special problems before you. Now, the first two points, they're real sweet. They're easy to swallow. But the third point, it can be bitter and hard to swallow. For here's the lesson we learn about Joseph that Joseph had to learn from God, and that is this. Life is not a playground. It's a training field. None of us will ever be all that God wants us to be and get all that God wants us to have and do all that God wants us to do unless they encounter some difficulties and problems. Joseph did. In verse 18, his brothers conspired against him. In verse 21, they threw him into a pit. In verse 28, he was sold as a slave. In chapter 39, we'll see where he's falsely accused of rape. And in chapter 40, he's unfairly thrown into prison. Now you think you've got problems. Here was a 17-year-old boy who was guilty of nothing but following God's will for his life. And yet we're told in chapter 37, verse 28, he was forsaken by his family. When Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. And in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 23, we're told that he was forgotten by his friends. It says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And in chapter 41, verse 1, we see Joseph frustrated by his failures. And then it says, two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. And guess who they sent for? Joseph. Now there's a tremendous lesson we learned from Joseph. And like it or not, it's true. Now get this. You may have never heard this before, but I want you to understand this. Life is not always fair. Now, that shouldn't surprise you if it just did. Because Calvary wasn't fair. Nothing about Jesus dying on the cross was fair, even though for us it's necessary. And if Jesus dying on the cross wasn't fair, what makes you think life's going to be always fair for you? You see, God was trying to teach Joseph that there's a tremendous difference between growing up and growing old. People who like to fuss about little things 
people who say, I'm not going to church anymore because somebody hurt my feelings. Or I'm not going to show up anymore because I didn't get my way. See, those folks are growing old, but they're not growing up. And the key to everything that happened to Joseph, particularly the bad things, we discover in Genesis 50, 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Joseph is the Old Testament illustration of one of the greatest New Testament promises we have. Romans 8, 28, we all know it. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there are four things God's always doing in your life. And if you'll remember that God's always doing these four things in your life, you'll be able to meet anything life throws your way. It may not be fun, but you will be able to meet it and move forward. First of all, God is always guiding you. It says in Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. If you are living for God, he is leading you. Then did you hear me? If you are living for God, he is leading you. Secondly, God's also gauging you. Now, when we are aware that God is gauging us, and I got it out of order, I'll go back and correct it. That means he's measuring us. He's testing us. He's trying us. See, God's greatest concern is not what happens to you, but how you respond to what happens to you. Do you know why God let Joseph experience all the terrible things that happened in his life? Well, you don't have to wonder. Because... The psalmist said in Psalm 105, 17, 18, and 19, he sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with shackles. His neck was put in an iron collar. Until the time his prediction became true, the word of God tested him. God's always gauging us. God's also always guarding us. It tells us in Psalm 21, the Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground that God doesn't know about it. The very hairs of our head are numbered. Now don't go there. I understand what you're thinking. But the point is, God takes care of his own. He's always guarding us. And then God is always growing us. Someone said this well. And if you don't remember anything else I said this morning, this is one of the things I hope you'll remember. God isn't so concerned with delivering us out of the mess we're in as he is seeing us grow out of the mess we're in.
I don't understand all this going on right now. These are new days for me, just like they are for you. But I do hope when we come out on the other side of all of this, we've grown. Not we've survived, we've grown. That's exactly what God was doing with Joseph. He was grooming him and and growing him and preparing him for the last and greatest stage of his life. And then that reminds us there's a special presence with us. Joseph went from being a dreamer to a worker to a prisoner to a ruler. But there was a secret to Joseph's ultimate success. There was a reason why Joseph made it from the pit and the prison to the palace. In chapter 39, verse 2, we're told the Lord was with Joseph. In verse 3, we're told his master saw that the Lord was with him. In verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. In verse 23, we're told the Lord was with him. And in Acts 7, 9, which is the only New Testament commentary on Joseph, It says, the patriots became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Three times we're told that God was with Joseph. We're told that uh, God was with Joseph during his servitude. In uh, Genesis 39, 1 through 3, it tells us now Joseph had been taken to Egypt, an Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. And then it says the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man serving in the household of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor in his master's sight. Joseph was sold into slavery to the head of the Egyptian KGB. But instead of griping and sullying and pouting and complaining, Joseph turned his slavery into a sacrifice of service to God. And even though he didn't know it, God was preparing him for a place of greater service. You see, you'll never be a leader until you learn what it is to be a servant. You'll never learn how to be over until you learn how to be under. He was teaching Joseph the lesson of humility. But secondly, he was with Joseph in his seduction. We remember the story. Potiphar's wife was doing everything she could to entice Joseph to have relations with her. But he refused to do it. And the reason was this. So how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? Potiphar's wife was just as determined that she would have Joseph as Joseph was determined that she would not. So one day she literally grabbed him by the coat to take him into her bedroom and instead he fled leaving his garment behind. He realized his character was more important than a coat. 
He realized you can't put a price on a clean conscience. By the way, I, I, this struck me, and I, I know I have a weird sense of humor, but anyway, many colored coat, Potiphar's wife holding the coat. If I were judged, if I'd have never wore a coat again all my life, I'd have gone to sweaters, sure enough. But he realized that God was going to be with him even during that seduction. Do you know why God allowed Joseph to be tempted? That he might develop the discipline of self-control. Because the person who can't control themselves will never be able to control others. But God was also with Joseph in his suffering. It says in uh, 39... 21 through 23, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And the warden put all of the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority. And he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden didn't bother with anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And the Lord made everything that he did successful. Joseph was thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. I'm sure he was taunted. He was ridiculed. I'm sure the devil mocked him and would say, well, Joseph, it doesn't pay to live for God, does it? What does it get you? Uh, uh, A life sentence in prison? But you know what Joseph said? It pays. I'd rather sit in the dark dungeon knowing that the sunlight of God's approval is upon my soul than to be free in Potiphar's house and suffer in the darkness of an evil conscience. Now, we all know the upshot of the story. God turned tragedy and trouble and temptation into triumph. Joseph went on to become the prime minister of Egypt. God kept his word. He always does. God fulfilled his will for Joseph's life. God made the dream become a reality. Teaching Joseph this lesson is found in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, because he cares about you. Joseph never quit believing God. Joseph never quit living for God. Joseph never quit trusting God. He never compromised his integrity. He never lost his humility. He never sold his purity. He never jeopardized his dignity. And because of that, he won the victory. I got a video I want you to see. Right before you roll that, does anybody know who uh, Dr. Theodore Gazelle is? He is a, a guy who has influenced our thinking in more ways than most of you are aware of. By the way, most of us know him as Dr. Seuss. <laughs> so I want you to watch this from a, 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 it's a clip from a movie, Horton Hears a Who. Quick, set the stage for you. Horton is an elephant who's going around holding a flower because there is a whole village of people known as Whoville, and he's promised he's going to protect them. 
Listen to this conversation between Horton and his friend. Horton! Don't. There you are. We got trouble. Wait, wait, wait. Did you hear that? No, I'm here. Okay, listen. No, go. Kangaroo has gone nuts. Bananas. She's telling everyone that you should be kicked out of Newell. She said that? I thought we were friends. Word is, she's gone to Vlad. 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 I know two Vlads. Is it the bad Vlad or the bunny Vlad that makes the cookies? Yeah, Horton. She's sending you a bunny with cookies. I think we can assume it's the bad Vlad. Yeah, that's a good call. So, unless you're cool with giant razor-sharp claws ripping the flesh off your body, I get rid of the clover. I can't. I promised the mayor. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. And an elephant's faithful 100%. Please, for me, just this once, be faithful 99% of the time. I've never got 99% on anything, and I think I'm awesome. So come on! I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. I'm not gonna say it. You can do that all day, it's not happening. An elephant's faithful 100%. That's right. That's my code. My motto. But thanks for the warning. I meant what I said. I said what I meant. Gary Anderson wants to be faithful 100%. I believe you want to be faithful 100%. And yeah, it's not always easy. It can be a struggle. But remember, God has something special for you. For you as an individual, for you as a church. Will you be faithful 100%? Our praise team's going to come and they're going to lead us in uh, our last song this morning. I've decided to follow Jesus. And I know you may be here this morning and you've never made that public decision. So we're going to give you the opportunity to make that decision public this morning. Because that's the first step in realizing God has something special for you. To give your life to him. And maybe you're here this morning and you made that decision years ago. But you've seen this church go through what's been an interesting time because you've been without a pastor in the midst of a pandemic. I doubt anybody here has ever done that before. But you're saying right now our new pastor's coming. And I've decided that me being a part of Sherall First Baptist Church, I've decided to follow Jesus. I meant what I said and I said what I meant. I'm going to be faithful 100%. Once you come and lead us, Trey will be at the front. The prayer kneeling cushions are open. Let's let God lead these next few moments. Oh. 